Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we have the second in our series of podcasts on what Europe can do on Trump's world. Last week we looked at the Middle East, this week we are looking at the big and the little picture behind Brexit. This was the week where Theresa May gave a long-awaited speech setting out her 12 objectives for the negotiations towards Brexit. In that speech, we learned that she is in favour of certainty wherever possible, control of all our own laws, strengthening the United Kingdom, maintaining the common travel area with Ireland, control of immigration, rights for EU nationals in Britain and British nationals in the EU, enhancing rights for workers, free trade with European markets, new trade agreements with other countries, a leading role in science and innovation, cooperation on crime, terrorism and foreign affairs, and a phased approach delivering a smooth and orderly Brexit. But it was also the week that we heard the most detailed description by Donald Trump of his attitude towards Europe, how he felt about Angela Merkel, what he thought about the chances of the European Union emerging unscathed from the Brexit crisis. So to help us make sense of all of those things and to see whether the Brexit negotiations will actually be influenced by the bigger changes to the liberal world order, which uh, had been unleashed by Donald Trump's election and which are forming part of a special series of podcasts on the world in 30 minutes. I am joined by Tom Nuttall, who is the Bureau Chief for The Economist in Brussels and the author of the Charlemagne column, which it runs every week on European politics, and by my colleague Ulrike Franke, who is a researcher at ECFR, based here in London, but of German origin and deeply soaked in all the German debates about Brexit as well as the global order. So, Tom, you are uh, the Brussels correspondent of The Economist. So you're kind of looking at this from two directions, both uh, as a Brit who might actually be affected by whatever happens to EU nationals in third countries, but also somebody who is seeing how the Brussels institutions engage with all of these things. Was there anything that surprised you in Theresa May's speech? Um, Well, to be honest, no. Um, I I think what we got from the speech was... um, uh, sort of proof that all along she really meant it. And, you know, we've had plenty of clues since the referendum that Britain was on its way out of the single market. I mean, from the very beginning, um, the Prime Minister has made it clear that Britain wants to restore some some degree of control um, over who comes in and out of the country. Um, and as we all know, freedom of movement is one of the EU's fundamental four freedoms, and um, withdrawing from it is not compatible with single market membership. So it didn't take a um, a, a, a great degree in, um, of, of expertise to, um, to deduce that Britain was on its way out. Similarly, the fact of the creation of a Department for International Trade and the appointment of Liam Fox to run it um, was a very ind- clear indication that Britain was on its way out of the customs union, um, even if it hadn't been definitively stated. So, um, you know, we, we, some, some things that we've been pretty clear on for a while were confirmed today. Um, that moves the debate on, um, certainly in Britain, um, as we approach the, the notification of Article 50 at the end of March, that's when the games will truly begin. But I think probably for most Europeans, um, they will uh, they will have watched this with interest, um, but I don't think it will have um, made a substantial difference to their calculus about how these talks are going to proceed. When it comes down to the nitty gritty, questions like exactly what sort of limitations on freedom 
Britain be seeking? What sort of transitional arrangements will they be looking for? Exactly what sort of um, uh, what uh, what sort of how this sort of mysterious association with the European Union's customs union is going to work? All of that stuff remains up up for grabs. There will be no movement on that until. The talks begin, um, which won't be until later this year. So um, I think no big surprises, but perhaps a, a, a useful degree of uh, useful degree of clarity. The one other point I'd say is that um, uh, Theresa May followed on from the comments made by her Chancellor Philip Hammond to a German newspaper over the weekend with this sort of um, semi-veiled threat that if the Europeans don't play ball, uh, then Britain will be forced to turn itself into an offshore tax haven slash corporation tax rates um, to improve, improve its competitiveness relative to its European partners. What I can tell you in conversations that I've had in Brussels and in capitals since the referendum um, is that that will be seen as a very hostile act. Even, even the threat will be seen as very hostile by some of Britain's negotiating partners and it could, um, it could cloud the mood as we approach the, uh, the beginning of the talks. So that, that is um, a very good point. Um, Ulrika, you've been looking at the German reaction to the speech. Uh, yeah, and I would say um, Tom raised a lot of good points. So the, the German reaction at this point isn't so much surprise with regard to the content, um, but there is the sense that this speech had a more adversarial tone than, than most people would have expected. So it very much felt like an kind of anti-EU statement. Um, it, you could also hear statements like, you know, the EU is not accountable or democratic and, and what Theresa May said. So um, I think the feeling is that, that this is maybe not the declaration of war, but it certainly um, shows that this is going to be a hard Brexit and that Theresa May wants this to be, or is, is willing to make this as adversarial um, as, as, not necessarily as possible, but as adversarial as, as needed. Um, Tom mentioned um, that there is some more clarity now. Um, I, I disagree to a certain extent because really, I mean, these 12 objectives weren't exactly, um, this wasn't exactly a German plan, let's say, um, because some of the, the objectives are, are very, very vague and just about we're going to inform the people when needed, but this doesn't necessarily mean that much. So it's not as much of a plan as a lot of people would have liked, I think. Really? I mean, I would have thought um, that it is very clear. It's not being in the customs union. It's not being in the single market. It's trying to get access to as many uh, derogations as possible in very limited areas. The only two economic areas that she mentioned were financial services and um, car industry and aerospace, I think, as, as, as areas where you'd have derogations on the customs union. And um, beyond that, it was also about, you know, cooperation, taking part in programs on science and technology, the role of, I mean, I, I think she left very little to the imagination, actually. I can't see the, the exact technical ways that you deal with the customs union uh, is a real question but compared to the idea of of trying to get access to the EA or, or or to be in the single market or the things that people were talking about immediately after the 23rd of June it's a very narrow area and it's it's quite technical I would have thought that most people in other countries feel that this is something that they could deliver on it doesn't feel like a cake it eat you know having your cake and eat it agenda 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was noted was, for instance, that there's still no clarity about EU citizens in the UK. So there's still some vagueness about that. Um, that was one of the things people kind of hoped that. But she said have. that I'm very clear that we should have a deal that, that exactly. foreign citizens. But being clear to have, want to have a deal isn't exactly a message. But she said there are one or two member states that refused to have a kind of pre-agreement on that. But she was, but I think, came very close to unilaterally uh, declaring. Did, did you not think, Tom? Um, yeah, I mean, she she tried she tried to get some sort of um, pre-cooked deal on this um, last year and didn't get very far because it violates this the European mantra of um, of no negotiations without nego before notification of Article Fifty. Um, so I think we're pro what she will probably seek to do um, once the notification has been made is to settle this issue. Um, and, 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 and sort of pocket it, so to guarantee the right, so you have a, um, a mutual, mutually guaranteed rights of, um, of citizens um, in each country. The trouble is, actually, if you, if you delve into the nitty gritty of this particular issue, it turns out to be much more complicated than you might imagine. You get into all sorts of complications about how to transfer pensions, about if you have, um, you know, Germans in, in Britain, then can they bring their kids over and are they entitled to cheap university tuition? All of this, all of this kind of stuff is much more complicated than. Um, than I think the government might have realised. But I think it's been pretty clear for a while that the British government wasn't prepared to make a, um, a unilateral offer to guarantee the rights of, um, of European citizens in Britain. It needed to be done in concert with, um, with all of the, the other EU countries. So I think that's what they'll be seeking to do fairly early on once, once the talks start. So the way I read it was that <clears throat> she's not asking for very much. So I don't think there's very much in there that is like enormously difficult for other people to ask. But equally, she's not offering very much. She's basically uh, saying that we're going to go it alone uh, where we can. We want deals with everyone else in the world. We will kind of uh, have a very transactional relationship. But we're certainly not going to invest very much in, in uh, making the EU work more effectively. Though she did kindly say that she didn't want the EU to collapse totally and that she didn't see that as a... Uh, but how do you think Michel Barnier would have read um, that speech, Tom? <laughs> uh, well, he did. Um, he tweeted in response to it and said uh, something like, you know, I, I, I will be working to secure a good deal for the 27, which is what he and others have been saying all along. Um, and, you know, we, we will wait until Article 50 is triggered to begin the talks. So it wasn't, wasn't very much there. Um, uh, you know, I... I think Barnier is probably, it, we don't know very much about him. He hasn't said very much publicly. He's not speaking to the press, um, although he has uh, done his um, tour of the European capital to take soundings um, before the talks actually begin. I think he, he's probably quite focused on the, um, on the issue of what sort of transitional deal might Britain be seeking. Um, and I think if I, if I read the, um, May's speech, Correctly, she seemed to be indicating that it was an option that she would keep on the table. I think she had a particular phrase for it. I forgot what it was, sort of phased implementation or something like that. Um, but wasn't particularly, um, wasn't, wasn't demanding something. And what Barnier has said is that if there's going to be a transitional deal, it can only be something that um, uh, we can only put it in place once we know what the landing point is going to be. Um, so I think that's going to have to be an early... Uh, focus of the talks, if there's going to be a transition, how long it will last, what the phased implementation will look like, and where we'll be getting to in the end. Theresa May has said again today 
I think, that she will be aiming to wrap up negotiations on the subsequent UK-EU trade relationship during the two-year period, which looks like an extraordinarily ambitious thing to aim at. Um, and that will raise the question of whether a transitional period will be needed in order to get from uh, uh, the date on which Britain leaves the EU in 2019 to the point at which that trade deal uh, comes into effect. So I think that's probably where a lot of the thinking in Brussels is going to be focused on right now. So I've been talking in London informally to uh, a group of uh, Tory MPs um, and trying to work out what their views are on the transitional deal. And what seems to come from the Brexiteers is that their main concern is that whatever deal is agreed to and whatever transitional arrangements there are, that the Brexit is made irreversible before the general election in 2020. So their definition of what is acceptable is essentially the the only way of reversing the Brexit if there is a general election result that differs from uh, a, a Tory victory would be to start the process of accession from scratch. So therefore, they kind of don't mind like, you know, having extended periods, but they have to be very clear sunset clauses so that things uh, run out, uh, but that we're properly out and that there's no kind of question because the Brexiteers are very bad at taking yes for an answer and their kind of deep paranoia is that there is some sort of half in, half out condition which the UK ends up in, which lasts forever. And that was one of the other interesting things about May's speech, I thought. Well, that reminds me, and maybe I can put a question to Ulrika on this, which is that um, I've been struck um, really ever since June the 23rd um, in Brussels, uh, but actually even more so in the capitals around Europe. Um, I'd say maybe a good three quarters of the conversations that I have with European officials about Brexit. At some point, I am am asked, do you really think this is going to happen? Surely it's not going to happen. It can't actually happen, can it? Um, to which I say, yes, it is going to happen. You know, get used to it. So I, I guess one, I wonder if May's speech today might might uh, might kill off that question for good. Maybe now, guys, to coin a phrase, that Brexit really means Brexit. Well, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I was struck by the same thing um, when Philip Hammond gave his interview to Die Welt. He was also asked, like, so is this really going to happen? Um, and he yeah, said, yeah. yes, absolutely. So there's still this question looming in the background, um, which I which I think stems from the fact that, you know, quite a lot of countries or quite a lot of people in Europe just can't believe that the UK is actually going to go through with it. Um, maybe May's speech is going to put these questions to rest. But I think what's happening now, I think that the mood is changing somewhat, that at least in the population. So if you look at the, the commentaries under articles, etc., you have this feeling of, well, then let's get it over with. I think a lot of people are now slowly getting annoyed by the whole debate and by how still nothing has happened. Article 50 hasn't even been invoked yet. So um, I think I think the, the whole clean Brexit thing may come back to haunt Theresa May in that regard, that people now say, well, then then let's do it. You know, you have said very clearly this is this is how it's going to be. This is this is um, the, the hard Brexit um, that you want. So hence, there shouldn't be too much negotiation necessary in the first place. So let's just do this now. Yes. And uh, I, I think one a, a misconception that some people in the British government may have been laboring under um, for a while is that dealing with Brexit is 
the number one priority for um, for Angela Merkel's government and other governments and the Brussels institutions. It's really, really not, and you only have to spend five minutes in Berlin to realise that. Um, I mean, not not only has the um, has the EU been bouncing from crisis to crisis for as long as anyone can remember, really. Um, the, I suppose the latest being Trump's election. Um, but it's also engaged on a process to find a sort of an animating mission for itself after Brexit as part of this so-called Bratislava process, uh, which will culminate in um, some sort of event in Rome at the end of March to, uh, to mark the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome, the EU's founding document. Now, whether you think there's going to be much of substance in this process is, <laughs> is very much an open question. But I think it's interesting. If you, if you look, at, look at what Barney has said today, look at what Merkel says, look at what all of the leading protagonists on the European side are saying. They're all talking about, Donald Tusk as well, they're all talking about safeguarding the rights of the 27 and securing the best deal for the 27. It's about making sure that Brexit doesn't become a catalyst for further disintegration. Um, but there's so much else going on that, um, you know, for if, if people in Britain think that um, coming up with a good Brexit trade deal is going to be at the top of uh, Europeans' to-do list, then I think they're in for a rude awakening. Yeah, and that was something I actually scribbled down uh, in my notes uh, before before this podcast, that the speech didn't in fact get as much attention as you know you may think. I mean, now in the afternoon it kind of became headlines in, in most uh, media outlets, but you know, Bill didn't even have it on on, on the first page. Um, and this morning in, in the news, it wasn't the first news story either. So it's it's not as if Germany or I would say Europe is waiting for the British government to say something on Brexit. You know, they're not desperately uh, waiting waiting for information. I, mean, I think that's one of the, the really striking things about the situation that we're in, because on the one hand, the, this speech made it clear the kind of hierarchy of priorities for, for Theresa May, which is at the top of the list is the unity of the Conservative Party, then stopping migration, then ending control of the European Court of Justice. And only after that kind of economic interests um, and and there's not much scope for anything else. You get quite far down the, the, the list before you, you look at these bigger questions about, you know, there's a, a, a sentence or two about cooperation on terrorism and foreign policy issues. And on the European side, as Tom and Ulrika, you were both saying, you know, it's pretty clear that making sure that Brexit is not seen as a success is uh, the main priority um, here because people don't want it to infect all the European elections which are going to take place yeah. in 2017. But behind all of that, there is a bigger kind of set of stories emerging which could change the, the world in all sorts of different ways. And Donald Trump is going to be inaugurated um this week um, and has started to make some pronouncements, not just about the shape of the world, but also his views on, on Europe. His interview in the Bildzeitung and in the Times has attracted quite a lot of attention. So maybe we can kind of pivot to that kind of larger global context. Um, Ulrika, do you want to talk a bit about how Berlin saw the um, the, the Trump interview? Because uh, Angela Merkel was very much in um in his in the crosshairs of um of, of trump's uh, uh i don't know where this metaphor's going anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let's not go there i mean there is indeed a certain um fear i think in germany that 
Angela Merkel won't be uh, Donald Trump's favorite partner in the world, um, to to put it to put it mildly. Um, so the, in combination with Brexit, there is an increasing sentiment in Germany that we may have to go at this alone, and this is something that Germany never wanted. So that was one reaction to the to the interview. Um, in the end, I have to say, I mean, yes, the interview did get quite a lot of attention, but the problem with Donald Trump, of course, is that. You know, everything he says, he has also contradicted uh, before or he's going to contradict within the next week. So we, the media did pick out, you know, certain sentences and, 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 and things, but you, you can always juxtapose it with something else really? he said. When has he said that Angela Merkel's <laughs> doing a great job and that he doesn't want the European Union to fall apart? Or maybe I missed those interviews. I, I, think, I think he has not said that he doesn't want the European Union to fall apart, but he, there, there are certainly quotes on Angela Merkel that are more positive than uh, what he said there. So it, it, there's, you have still this whole narrative of Germany being an important uh, partner. And also, like when he spoke to Angela Merkel uh, after he was elected, he did point out that uh, one of his parents comes from Germany yeah. originally. From where? Um, I don't remember. America, it's a small, Germany's it's a great country. Exactly. Germany. Exactly. So you have this whole, it's a great country. I really like it. Um, Unfortunately, that, Angela so. Merkel's killing it, though, in this view. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure whether, whether anyone knows what to, what to make of this. But yeah, certainly the fear of now having to do a lot of things on our own and, of course, economic concerns. I mean, this is really the one thing that, that, that is, is relatively clear, that, that both Brexit um, and Donald Trump's administration will mean either trade wars or at least will make free trade worldwide harder. And that is the biggest concern for Germany, really. And Tom, you've been looking at reactions to, to Trump in Brussels and in other places. What, what, what uh, do you think uh, the upshot of his interviews is? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky because um, it is so, so difficult to make informed predictions about um, how um, the stuff that we hear from Trump interviews like this and on his um, his Twitter feed are, are going to translate into policy. Um, I mean, it's pretty striking. If you look at some of the remarks uh, Trump made on NATO, for example, in the interviews with the, with the two newspapers, compare that to what um, his candidate for defense secretary, um, so-called Mad Dog Mattis, was saying at his confirmation hearings just a few days earlier. And I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, there's no way of getting around it. They're directly opposed to each other. Trump says that NATO is obsolete because it's very old and um, it's fixed on old problems and people aren't paying their way and so on, um, which is, I mean, to be fair to him, I suppose he's been entirely consistent on that point for um, not only for this election campaign, but for years. Even decades. I think it was two yeah, decades yeah, ago yeah, yeah, that he was exactly, buying exactly, adverts yeah. in the New York um, Times where, to make that point. Whereas Mattis was giving what I guess um, in his hearings was a fairly sort of conventional um, hawkish Republican line on um, on Russia and on and on NATO and the importance of, uh, of America's old alliances. Very, very difficult to reconcile these positions. When Trump was asked about it, um, I, I've forgotten the phrase he had, but he said um, he doesn't you know, he doesn't want to be surrounded by yes men. He wants them to give their opinions, not just his opinions. I mean, you know, what on earth are we supposed to make of this? Um, where will so we ha we have to start doing sort of criminology? We have to start working out um, where the power is going to lie on issues of national security. Um, who you know, who out of Mattis and Flynn, on the transnational security advisor, is going to hold the upper hand? What will this mean for um, uh, for America's approach um, to NATO? Um, and 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 I think the only um, the only um, meaningful answer. That 
can give to that at this stage is God knows. It's absolutely impossible to know. But I think the one thing I would say is that what Trump has already managed to do, obviously, is to inject a whole heap of uncertainty into um, into geopolitics and geosecurity, and that in itself can have consequences. So, for example, um, even before the election, the American election, um, European unity on sanctions towards Russia was starting to look pretty shaky. Um, you had countries like Italy, Hungary, uh, Cyprus, others, um, who uh, every time they were up for renewal, every six months, um, they were getting increasingly vocal about that. Now, the next time that they, had come, they come up for renewal, um, in the summer, if we have had a clearer indication from the White House that it's ready to do some sort of bilateral deal with Russia that may involve dropping sanctions, and Trump has already said as much, um, is Angela Merkel really going to be able to hold the European position together on that? And by the way, we may also at that point have had the election of Francois Fillon in France, who's also um, a lot less hawkish on, um, on Russia than the current occupants of the Elysee. So, um, the, the uncertainty that Trump has injected into global politics itself will have an effect, even if there is no consistent line that emerges from D.C. in the, um, in the first few months of the administration. And with the best, world, best will in the world, the most organized administrations always take a long time to get their act together. The appointments that have to be made, they have to bed in, they have to work out their relationship with Congress and so on. Um, so um, I suppose the advice to Europe on this has got to be, well, hope for the best and you may get it, but by God, really prepare for the worst. But that's one of the interesting things that links the two halves of this conversation that, um, you know, there is this looming threat, both to the kind of liberal world order, which Europeans have depended on, the security order as defended by NATO, uh, to the global trading regime, and uh, the attitudes to it in london and berlin are like they're like two pl different planets so in berlin um there is a sort of concern about how to uphold the global system can uh angela merkel become leader of the free world uh whereas in london you know the big debate is about why was it why was theresa may only the ninth person who um donald trump uh, called should Nigel Farage become the ambassador to, to, to Washington and um, th the question is always going to be you know can Britain somehow cut loose from the rest of the EU and yeah. curry favor with Washington and and get a free trade deal if it doesn't back the European position and we've already seen that put to the test on on the two-state solution it could happen on the Iran nuclear deal and the Russian question you know to the extent that brits are talking about it they're you know it's bad can we um get a better deal by putting troops in poland and and uh, and in baltic states because they, they might uh, be helpful to us on uh, on eu uh, negotiations if we're if we're exporting security to them uh, ulrika yes. is that a fair characterization of the the two sides is is it really is there this sort of high-minded response in berlin or is is it does it just look like that from um to, to outsiders yeah I'm, I'm not so sure i mean i'm slightly we i've seen so many um articles about you know merkel and germany now leading the the liberal world uh, merkel as the leader of the free world all of this um now angela merkel herself is a very an ideological person uh, so I don't think that she actually sees herself in that way and um, I think we've also discussed this on other podcasts in this series is that um, even Germany doesn't lend itself to be the the leader of the liberal world order for for a number of reasons so I'm I'm not really sure whether 
that is a debate that is being had in kind of German government circles. It may be maybe discussed uh, in the fringes and it certainly is discussed internationally but within the Merkel government I'm I'm not so sure it very much seems to me that that their approach to well all of these things really is well keep calm and see what's actually gonna come don't worry too much or don't you know panic too much over things we don't know whether they're actually coming and we can't influence anyway and as Tom mentioned be prepared as much as you can for for the fallout so try to become more assertive um, internationally um, do more strengthen NATO all these things but I don't think that there's this big big idea big ideological idea of of uh, now stepping up the game and 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 leading the free world you know if the uk and the us don't want to be really in this anymore <laughs> there's not much left that being said like angela merkel did choose the moment to announce her uh decision to run for office in germany as the moment that trump was elected and she made a clear link between her role as a guardian of these values which will be the only basis <laughs> on which we can talk to the americans and her decision to run, did she not? Yes, and I do believe that she meant that, but again, not in an ideological way. I think she 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 realized that if she were to step down, this would mean that that Germany wouldn't have a strong um, um, leader at the moment, and then we really would have a problem internationally and in Europe because you know who who else who else is gonna keep. Europe together, or kind of you know keep, keep it all together in a way. Your potential successors. That that is that <laughs> may be true. I, th I think I think there's quite an important point there. I mean, I think that's exactly why she decided that she had to run for a fourth term. Um, but if all of our eggs are in the Merkel basket, then um, you know, with all due respect to the Chancellor, then we're in trouble. I mean, if we look back at the, the various crises that have hit Europe over the last few years, you find Germany and you find Merkel at the heart of all of them, from Greece in the Eurozone to refugees um, to handling Russia. Um, now, I think that the refugee crisis in particular um, has decisively weakened Merkel, um, not to the point that she won't be re-elected Chancellor. I think that she it's very hard to see that she won't be re-elected, but she will never um, hold the position of strength inside Europe again, as she ha um, as, uh, does a degree that she has in previous years. And Europe's problems um, aren't getting any easier to solve. I had um, I had a very interesting conversation a few months ago with one of the Brexit negotiators in Brussels. Um, and we, it was very long in detail, and he was taking me through all the sort of the various issues um, that have to be fixed under the Article 50 talks. Um, and I left very dispirited, having realised just how complicated and potentially nightmarish this was. And as I left, I, I said, I said, what do you think um, of all the things that we've been talking about here? What is it that really keeps you up at night? What are you really worried about? Um, and rather than talking about, you know, sort of. Uh, British budget contribution or who's going to deal with the pension liabilities of British bureaucrats, all this stuff that we've been talking about. He said the thing that he was really worried about was that Merkel is no longer the figure of strength that she once was in Europe. She can't hold it together the way that she has been able to in the past. Um, and then in, in a moment of crisis, there is nobody else who can um, who can occupy that position of strength. France can't do it. The Brussels institutions can't do it. Obviously, Britain, by definition, can't do it. So actually, and now, of course, we see... Um, uh, an America that may be moving um, in, in a completely different direction. So what we may be heading towards um, is a strange sort of power vacuum in the Western world, which is going to have implications both for how Europe deals with its own problems, 
but also for how it deals with the wider world. And that is potentially very worrying, I think. And do you think there might be any read across between the two? Maybe as a last question to, to both of you, do you think that somehow Trump might actually force either the UK government or the different governments across the European Union to uh, look at the bigger picture and to get off the the um, conveyor belt, which both sides seem to be on at the moment, to a really bad Brexit, which will weaken both sides. Um, if you're talking specifically about Brexit, um, no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I suppose... Britain has indicated, and I think May may have mentioned this in her speech today, um, that uh, it sees uh, various forms of security or defence cooperation with the EU as um, as a potential bargaining chip in the talks to come. Britain, you sometimes hear the phrase of security surplus. You know, Britain sort of puts in more on security and defence that that it takes out. And if and Trump's approach to NATO has, um, as it were, it's sort of uh, it's lifted the arguments of those inside Europe and inside NATO who have been saying for a long time, anyway, it's time for us to take more responsibility for our own security, to start spending more. Um, now they have a they have an extra, a very powerful argument because they can say, well, look, for years America may have grumbled, but it never really did anything. Now there is every danger that it really will start to um, remove the security umbrella if we don't take more, pay more attention to ourselves. And if they are starting to think that way, and if that line of thinking is becoming more entrenched in Europe, then that may push them towards uh, a more, that they may have a friendlier, um, they may be more receptive to an approach from Britain on Brexit that involves a greater degree of security and defence cooperation. So I suppose there's that. But I, um, in the sort of the bigger picture, no, I don't think so. I think the domestics, uh, the, the dynamics driving um, Brexit in Britain um, are uh, are domestic. They're about, as you said earlier, they're about what's happening inside the Conservative Party. They're about ensuring that the, the mandate that the government considers a referendum to have um, expressed is fully delivered. I don't think that people are really thinking about the bigger strategic picture. Maybe they ought to, but they're not. Yeah, I'm afraid I, I agree. I mean, you, Mark, you wrote this uh, um, column about how governments haven't understood yet how much the world has changed. And I think I, I very much agree. I mean, 2016, in a way, has been a wake-up call, but I think it has been more of a wake-up call for the people than for governments. I don't see any kind of major changes in how things are, are being approached. And certainly in the Brexit negotiation, I don't I don't think that, you know, the election of Trump or um, um, the general falling apart of the liberal order is, is likely to to influence the negotiations um, a lot. I mean, it may even be that the Europeans are now so afraid of, you know, um, the US not being behind them anymore that they'll fall apart even more um, rather than come together. That's a nice uplifting note <laughs> on which to end, Jerica. Yeah, I, I tend to be not too positive these days. <laughs> Um, and there was I thinking when you came back from your holidays in South America that it would all be kind of smiles and, and positivity. But a couple of days dealing with Theresa May and Donald Trump seem to have <laughs> put paid. Um, we have one thing left to do, which is uh, to talk about our bookshelves. Tom, what do you, why don't you go first? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? All right. Well, in the last few months, um, I've been so... Uh overloaded with politics that um, my reading has taken me elsewhere. Um, the, the first book I'm going to recommend is, um, is Zadie Smith's new novel, which is called Swing Time. Um, I've got a 
particular fondness for her because she writes about the part of London that I grew up in, in northwest London. But I don't think you need to be familiar with um, NW6 and NW10 and NW2 to, to enjoy her extraordinary characterization of uh, this relationship between two young girls um, forged a, over a, a common love of, um, of ancient Hollywood dance movies. It's just absolutely wonderful. The other book I've been reading, uh, making my way through at the moment, it's, um, I guess, what you call an intellectual biography. Um, it's by Michael Lewis of, um, of Moneyball fame, the American journalist. Um, he's written a, a joint biography of two Israeli psychologists, uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, um, who essentially reinvented their field by identifying the structural weaknesses in the ways that humans make decision making. Um, and they had an extraordinarily close relationship, which Lewis um, chronicles brilliantly in this book, and he ties it into the development of Israel as a nation. Um, Amos Tversky died a while ago, but Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, it would have certainly gone to both of them had Tversky still been alive. Um, but Kahneman is still alive and well and churning out some great work, and as an, both as an introduction to their fascinating work, but and as a sort of a compelling read on its own merits. I, I, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's brilliant. Wow. So, Ulrika, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, well, I just, um, as you mentioned, I just came back from, from tra traveling through Argentina and um, the travel reading I had with me was Bruce Chatwin's In Patagonia, which according to the New York Times revolutionized travel writing. Um, so it's a book from uh, 1979, I think. And Bruce Chatwin travels from London to Patagonia, which I thought was very fitting. Um, and I think it's, it's fascinating in that he travels through Patagonia, which is this huge space which with very, very few people in it and meets all these very interesting people and tells all of these stories. And um, although it is written in the 1970s, you can already see how, how um, well, not connected, but um, how international the world is already back then, because Argentina is our listeners probably know it's a very European or yeah, European country really. And so he meets all these great people from the Welsh immigrant to the German family to, um, I don't know, Americans who've settled in, in Argentina. And it's quite, it's quite fascinating the stories he tells. Okay. And I have been uh, contemplating the, the work of Sigmund Bauman, who very tragically died um, in the last few days. And, um, went back to one of his books from uh, I think about 15 years ago called Liquid Modernity where he basically talks about how the world has moved from uh, a kind of period of time where um, things were, were kind of solid and ordered and structured to one where um, instead you have these sort of shape-shifting dynamics which are completely changing uh, and upending our politics, uh, personal relations, international relations. And it's an incredible book that presages the arrival of, of Donald Trump, of fake news, of a lot of the things that we're in today. And I think he, you know, will be remembered as one of the really deep thinkers of the, of the 20th century, whose personal life was... Uh, shaped by the Holocaust and by um, uh, the kind of big traumas of the of the 20th century, but whose thinking, I think, has done more to explain the dynamics of the 21st century world than than uh, almost anyone's one of the, the real greats. So it's very sad to, that, uh, that, that he's left us. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tweet about it. 
write about it on your Facebook page. But more importantly than that, give us a review and a ranking on iTunes because that will drive many other people to listen to this podcast and spread the knowledge and ideas which are so crucial to Europe at this difficult time in its history. If you have any comments, please feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. We are putting links up to all the books and publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Tom Nuttall, Ulrike Franke and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Pauline Goemin. Thank you.